0: It's Aspen Ideas to go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. U.S. troops are still on the ground in Iraq and Afghanistan years after those conflicts began. Fifteen years ago, President George W. Bush announced the beginning of the Iraq War. And in the country's longest war, the U.S. began bombing Afghanistan nearly 17 years ago, targeting al-Qaeda and the Taliban. Is there a path out of these conflicts for the United States and war-weary Iraqi and Afghan citizens? Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from on-stage events hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Today's discussion was held in Aspen, Colorado, at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Jane Harmon was a member of Congress when 9-11 happened. Afterwards, she voted yes on authorizing the use of military force twice, once in 2001 and again in 2002. The first was to use force in Afghanistan against the people who attacked the U.S. The second vote was to prevent Iraq from using what Congress thought were weapons of mass destruction. She cast her votes after careful examination of the intelligence, she says.
1: The intelligence was wrong and... In hindsight, my vote was wrong, but I put it out there. I believed at the time it was the right vote. I don't think I was misled. I just think we called it wrong.
0: The aftermath of decisions from Congress and other leaders has been brutal. Tens of thousands of lives have been lost in Afghanistan and Iraq, and the U.S. has spent trillions. Today, Harmon leads a conversation with others who were deeply involved in these conflicts. David Petraeus led the 101st Airborne Division in the invasion of Iraq. He also ran U.S. Central Command and directed the CIA. Doug Lute was U.S. Ambassador to NATO, and Dan Sinor is a former Defense Department official who was based in Baghdad. Ryan Crocker has served as ambassador in six countries, including Afghanistan and Iraq. Their conversation was held June 29th. Here's Jane Harmon.
1: Okay, well, let's roll back the videotape uh, to... 2001 and 9-11. I'm looking out here, you were all alive. And it was the, I, I would say, the defining event of this century, uh, not just for us, but, but for the world. And it changed the course of, I think, U.S. foreign and security uh, policy, and certainly has changed it. It hasn't, it, it may change it forever. But let's go back to that. All of these people had jobs uh, in, in various security jobs. So maybe we should just talk about uh, what the mindset was after 9-11 as our country considered uh, under the administration of George W. Bush uh, entering into these two wars. Uh, Maybe we'll start with Dave.
2: Well, I was actually deployed uh, at that time in Bosnia, where I was not only the the one-star general in charge of operations for the stabilization force, but also the deputy commander of a clandestine joint task force that's now all known, uh, that was doing the war criminal hunt. And with that, we had the largest, not just special operations, but the special mission unit uh, deployment in the world. And so we were very plugged in when this all happened. And then as the intelligence spigot turned on in the wake of 9-11, And little known fact, the first counterterrorism operation after 9-11 was actually not in Afghanistan, it was actually in Bosnia, and and, and as I mentioned, I was the deputy commander of that. Um, We felt a sense of ticking time bomb scenario strategically in the wake of that. Uh, There was a sense that there's more to come, uh, that this was not just a one-off, but that this was the first uh, action, the first operation of a campaign of terrorism that would target our country, our citizens, and our allies uh, around the world. And that was the context, of course, in which you voted, the Congress voted, the country reacted, and, of course, President Bush made the first of a number of of fateful decisions to, of course, deploy our forces to Afghanistan and to eliminate the sanctuary in which al-Qaeda had planned the 9-11 attacks, had conducted the initial training of the attackers, uh, all under the control of the Taliban when the Taliban controlled that portion of Afghanistan. And so that was the scenario. And it was, again, a very, very, uh, very, very difficult and a period of enormous, again, strategic apprehension on the part of those in the intelligence community and in the military.
1: Well, that's the conversation about Afghanistan. Is any, I, I doubt anyone disagrees. Uh, on that, and we'll get into how these wars were prosecuted. Uh, Segway to Iraq, I put out there uh, what my thoughts were, and I wanna to turn to Ryan, because Ryan, I think you were uh, dubious about our going into Iraq, and I remember in Congress, Bob Graham, uh, Senator Bob Graham from Florida, who cha- then chaired the Senate Intelligence Committee said, big mistake, we shouldn't go into Iraq, and his reason was, it wasn't about WMD and the quality of the intelligence, it was about the fact that we would take our eye off the ball in Afghanistan, which was an interesting reason. And I thought, no, you know, most of our action in Afghanistan is already over, that turned out to be wrong. Uh, But Ryan, what were you doing then, and what did you say?
3: Well, I I have a long association with Iraq. Uh, I, I don't recommend it to anyone here. (laughs) <laughs> uh, I, uh, early in my career, I, uh, I served for two years in Baghdad, 1978 to 1980. We, we didn't have diplomatic relations at that time with the Iraqis, so um, we were Belgian diplomats. We flew the Belgian flag, and my calling card said Second Secretary, Embassy of Belgium. Uh, so I got to see what a total security state looks and acts like. Um, I've been in, in a few authoritarian countries. Iraq was leading the list. Uh, truly was a republic of fear, as uh, Kanan Makiya said in his, his book. Uh, I, I was back in Iraq uh, in 1998 as a UNSCOM weapons of mass destruction inspector. I had a chance to connect with the leadership. Um, I was up in Kurdistan uh, in 2001, 2002, working with the Kurds to be sure that if we did take military action, that they would not jump the gun, that they would not precipitate it. In other words, that they would just sit quiet. We would tell them next what was going to happen. And then with Dan Dan Signor, I was uh, back in Baghdad in 2003, about the same time that uh, uh, General Petraeus was leading the 101st into Mosul. Uh, so it's a kind of a long history that brought me again back in 2007 as ambassador until 2009. Uh, I, I was not a great – based on my previous experience, I was not a huge proponent of uh, military-led regime change, not because Saddam Hussein didn't deserve to be changed. If anybody ever did, it would be him, uh, but because of the now what? Uh, Dave famously said, tell me how this ends. Uh, that was a black box. It's not that we weren't prepared for phase four, post-conflict. It's that we could never have been prepared for it. You, 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 you knock over somebody's regime. You're setting in motion actions and consequences that will go to the thirtieth and fortieth order. Uh, so
1: we're going to get to that, um, the thirtieth and fortieth order, and with this, uh, with this group. So Dan, what we let's. Th- Stay focused on Iraq, sure. Because you went in. That was uh, you hadn't. You were not in the military.
4: I was working for the Pentagon in the White House, and I was based in Doha during the what was the first phase of major combat operations at Central Command forward. And then the White House asked me, uh, as the war was quote unquote winding down, uh, they asked me if I could go to Kuwait to help Jay Garner's team, the civilian reconstruction team, launch into uh, Iraq. I was supposed to only. This whole assignment was supposed to be 90, 90 days. Right. Uh, turned into 15 months. Uh, and so I, went, I agreed to go to Kuwait and then help the team launch. And then they said, well, you know, can you also just go into Baghdad for a little bit and help them get settled? Um, so we drove from Kuwait City to Baghdad and helped the Garner team get settled. And then Garner left about, what was it, about six weeks later? Mm-hmm. Uh, and less then, than that. Less than that, four yeah. weeks. And then Ambassador Brimmer came in, and then the White House, and Ambassador Bremer asked me to stay on. So I ended up staying on. Um, for about another year uh, but when I was when when 9/11 happened I was not actually in government I had been out of government for a little bit before I went back in um, I would just say I mean two things one I was in Iraq early days and worked closely with uh, ambassador Crocker and I just it is true Jane that uh, ambassador Gro- Crocker as he has publicly spoken to was a skeptic about what could be accomplished uh, you know with regard to our intervention in Iraq I know we're going to get to that but Once he was on the ground, at least when I worked with him, he was all in on trying to make it work, even though he had been a skeptic. And I just say that because we are living in a culture right now in the sort of national conversation where there's, I think, unfair and heightened criticism of our career foreign service officers, people in the intelligence community, uh, about how loyal they are to a policy. And I just would say Ambassador Crocker is like the model of someone who, even when he's skeptical, once a decision's made, he's all in. Um, we
1: applaud that, because yeah. it matters. And, and uh, I just, I just want to add to that, that uh, it, at the time, nobody was sure what our future right. would be, and everyone was worried about attack. And it was a time, uh, unlike this time, where America really came together exactly. around trying to keep the country safe.
4: As it relates to, and again, with, the, with, with hindsight, it's easy to say why Iraq was not obvious as a place to land post-9-11. But I just, again, ask people to sort of, as you said, rewind the tape and put yourself in the minds and the perspective of policymakers and decision makers at that time, which was not, the mindset was not only did September 11th happen, and as General Petraeus said, we all lived in fear that something else like it could happen, but there was also the understanding that whatever happened next probably wouldn't look exactly like what happened on September 11th. So it required immense imagination as this 9-11 Commission said, one of the real breakdowns in what led to September 11th was failure to imagine, a breakdown in, in imagination. And once you unleash that, once you start saying, people are out to destroy us and we have to be really imaginative and really creative in terms of what they'll do next, you, you can go to a lot of places. And one of them that you wind up at is what rogue regimes are operating around the world that are supporting terrorist organizations that have had the ambition to develop weapons of mass destruction, have at times actually had active programs, and have actually used them. In the case of Iraq, had unleashed chemical weapons on their own citizens. So if you're thinking about what the next 9-11 is gonna look like, and you are trying to be creative and thinking about who could get involved and where it could go, focusing on countries that have active or were, thought to have active WMD programs and have used them in the past and were an enemy of the United States and had danced with various terrorist proxy groups, it's not, again, all that we know now, it sort of seems obvious that that was right. erroneous. But at the t- I just want people to kind of understand where we were at the moment.
1: And I appreciate that. So, Doug, um, you're playing uh, cleanup here. You you had <laughs> <tough> several <laughs> command jobs. Which one did you have? Uh, in, in you know, at the beginning of the Afghanistan uh, in, uh, war and the Iraq war, and and what did you think about then? And
5: so, on 9-11, I was an active duty Army colonel serving as the executive assistant to the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Hugh Shelton, and uh, the early morning. Uh, that day, it was business as usual. I mean, we got on an airplane and we we're making our way to a NATO meeting, of all things, in Europe. Uh, and as we approached the UK airspace, the pilots on the plane were listening to BBC, I think, for entertainment. Uh, and, and one of them reported to us that, hey, you know, there's this report on the news, the news services that a plane had flown into the North Tower. And we said, well, this is impossible. We had overflown New York. And it was a crystal clear blue, like Aspen-like summer day.
4: Not to make anyone nervous.
5: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So we said, this seems really strange. And initially, we ignored it. And business as usual had us continuing our flight path. And then the second plane, we turned around, overflew New York. Now the plume of smoke is at 20,000 feet. Landed at Andrews. Uh, We could see the smoke from the Pentagon still burning. Uh, arrived at the pentagon stepped over the debris went to the site of the impact stepped over the debris they were still evacuating casualties and so forth so it was pretty clear that 9 11 was one of those historic moments which probably if you go back in american security history is only uh, closely approximated by pearl harbor in fact the casualties in 9 11 uh, exceeded the casualties in pearl harbor so you only get one of these sort of once in a generation but it was crystal clear on that day as the Pentagon was burning that this, everything was, from thereafter was gonna be different. So uh, it was a shock. I next entered this scene uh, in 2004 when I joined the U.S. Central Command staff as the operations officer, so sort of the COO, I suppose. Um, and at that point, uh, Iraq is burning. Uh, 2004, 2005, 2006, things were going steadily downhill. Um, and from the central command perspective, 90% of our bandwidth, uh, both in terms of military capabilities but also in terms of policy and decision making and so forth, was committed in that 25-country area. It was mm-hmm. 90% committed to Iraq. So, so that's the short. The short, well, and maybe that's a segue into you know. The, the we're going to get into
1: all of, all of this stuff, but I, I just want to uh, ask you one more point, and that is, you later became ambassador to NATO. NATO committed huge forces, and some, I mean, there really was an international group in Afghanistan. How did that come about?
5: Well, I think in the wake of 9-11, um, the international community rallied uh, to, uh, to America's support. I mean, this was, remember, it, weren't, it wasn't just Americans lost in 9-11, there were 10 or 20, 25 other countries who lost, uh, lost national citizens. Um, and there was this huge uh, swell of international support for the United States. It's very interesting, I mean, Vladimir Putin, I think, made the first uh, supportive phone call to the Oval Office in the wake of 9-11. Um, and I think the thing I take away from 9-11 and NATO is that it, it's a perfect example of why we maintain alliances like this. When something like 9-11 happens, or we confront some lesser crisis around the world, the place to start when the dust settles is with your closest allies. And it's much better to begin the reaction to 9-11 or any other problem with 28 like-minded democratic allies uh, as, we, as we do today. And that's why, fundamentally, we invest in these long-term alliances. And they ended up serving with us uh, in uh, Afghanistan. To this day, there are 40 countries in the international coalition in Afghanistan. So that's the power of NATO. That's the power of our alliances. <music>
0: It's Aspen Ideas to go. Thanks for listening. The speakers involved in today's talk about Iraq and Afghanistan have impressive resumes and interesting histories. Ryan Crocker was working in the US embassy in Beirut, Lebanon when it was bombed in 1983. He was blown against a wall, but he and his wife, who also worked in the embassy, were able to escape. The blast killed 64 people. Crocker is now a diplomat in residence at Princeton University. Jane Harman, today's moderator, served nine terms in Congress. She's a Democrat from California. Doug Lute served in the administrations of President Obama and President Bush. For Bush, he was Deputy National Security Advisor to coordinate the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Dan Senor was Senior Advisor to Paul Ryan's 2012 campaign for Vice President. And David Petraeus served more than 37 years in the military. He commanded coalition forces in Iraq and Afghanistan. Now back to their conversation. Here's Jane Harmon. I wanna to go to Dave and Ryan to talk about the prosecution
1: of each war and the overlap, but before that, Dan, explain how the Coalition Provisional Authority uh, was stood up and what its uh, life, <laughs> its short life was like.
4: Um, well, based on the planning for the, what we call the, post, the post-war period, uh, there was an expectation that there would be a very light footprint Uh, For the military
1: this is in Iraq in Iraq.
4: Yeah, this is so for planning for you know, 2003 2004 there was supposed to be a very light footprint uh, for our forces and we would have a a Administrator civilian administrator there. There was basically just supposed to get the government the Iraqi government functioning so the approach as I think, you know Ryan alluded to was that we would just sort of decapitate the regime so we kind of remove Saddam and his sons and then the government would just sort of keep on functioning. And we would just help them, you know, we'd help facilitate that. And what we soon realized when, when we arrived there, so I got there uh, April 20th, I think, April 15th or April 20th of uh, 2003. Uh, what was, and this was, even before <clears throat> Ambassador Brimmer arrived, what was soon obvious was, A, I mean, to those of us on the ground at least, was the security footprint was totally insufficient. You can't, I mean, the society was, like, collapsing, right, you know, before, right in front of our eyes, and, and Ryan could speak more into how that happened and why we should have expected that to happen, but it was complete chaos. I mean, the ratio of troops in Baghdad at the time, and General Petraeus could, could probably give a more accurate number, but I remember it was approximately something like, for the local population relative to U.S. forces, or coalition forces, was about 700 to 1, which is like nothing. I mean, 700 Iraqis for every... Coalition force member, which, if you look at the history of successful occupations over the previous half century, the, the numbers were a fraction of that. So we were our forces were, for no fault of their own, just it was a light footprint, were invisible. It was total chaos. It was anarchy, and there was there was a sense that no one was in charge. And on the political front, or on the civilian administrative side, uh, we the U.S. government had been wrong that the government just could just sort of keep functioning. We can get into why, what errors were made in that regard. But there was also the sense that we could kind of bring in a bunch of Iraqi exiles, so Iraqi political leaders who had been living outside of Iraq during some of the most brutal years of the Saddam years before uh, 2003, and that we could parachute them in and kind of put them atop of the Iraqi government and put Humpty Dumpty back together again, and it would require a very light uh, footprint on the civilian side too. That was also wrong. And, uh, and so we gradually, the US government, gradually beefed up the civilian presence. So what was the, originally the Garner team, which was a very light footprint, turned into the Coalition Provisional Authority, which basically became, became a civilian governing authority, albeit run by foreigners, running daily governmental functions and operations in Iraq until we could stand up a government. That was what our job was on the civilian side, cobble together political leadership, try to get the ministries uh, working, try to get the government functioning, try to get essential services like electricity working, uh, and then the idea was to hand over sovereignty ultimately, which, which we did in summer of 2004, to a political leadership, which was led at the time by uh, Ayada the prime minister who we handed sovereignty over, and then we could be done. That was, that was the aspiration. It didn't exactly work out that way. Um, but that's what the coalition provisional authority was.
1: Okay, so now segue to the A-plus team. That would be Petraeus and Crocker, who were in both war theaters over many years, our dear friends. Dave was the author or one of the authors of the counterinsurgency strategy coin, and uh, Dave also was the commanding officer over both the surges, the so-called surges in both countries. So that's, that's a lot of a lot. And Ryan, as, he, as you know, as I said, I mean, is the, the vaunted ever uh, ambassador in the region. So, uh, I, I couldn't decide the best way to tell the story, so why don't you just tell the story? Uh, one of you tell it, and then the other one uh, tell it. <laughs> and we'll see if it's the same story. You first.
2: <laughs> to, uh, to augment a little bit the kind introduction, I, had, I not only commanded the 101st Airborne Division during the invasion of Iraq, and then the mm-hmm. subsequent first year ultimately located in Mosul after the fight to Baghdad, Uh, I then came back as a three-star very quickly after that to to establish the so-called train and equip mission, uh, and then came back again uh, for a four-star command as the commander of the surge, where I was partnered with the greatest greatest diplomatic partner that any military uh, commander could have had, and then went to Central Command, oversee all of it, and then obviously to Afghanistan, where he then later showed up as well. You know, he and I just kept showing up in One of the great tag places.
1: teams in all history. Um,
2: what I would like to do, though, I think, is, is just start by noting that I think there were three huge lessons from the first year in Iraq uh, and to offer those, and I'll, I'll lead into those by recalling that, number one, when I'd been asked about the plan uh, several months earlier when I happened to be in the Pentagon by a guy named General Jack Keene, big mentor of mine, Vice Chief of Staff of the Army at the time, I said, well, boss, I fear that we may be too light if they fight, i.e. not enough troops, Mm -hmm. if they actually put up serious resistance. And they did for a bit, and it was a little bit, it was much more dicier than people recall. And these um, thunder runs were incredibly risky. Uh, Pulled it off, but it, it, it worked. But it brought about the collapse of a regime, and then really became true what I said next, which was, I believe we'll be too light if they collapse, and that was where Dan was just reflecting. Right. So on the eve of the invasion, uh, we were called back into uh, Kuwait City to the location where the headquarters was, uh, and it was sort of a final get-together with the commanders. Again, I just a two-star at the time. There was a three-star commander, and then another three-star who was his boss. And I remember they asked at the end of it, you know, anybody got any questions? And you know, I sort of timidly said, excuse me, but can you, Give us a little bit more detail about what happens uh, after we take down the regime. I know we'll have a fight in Baghdad and all that stuff, but what happens then? What's the phase four in a bit more detail? And and the forerunner of the coalition provisional authority, uh, he was a retired three-star and knew me, and he said, Dave, you just get us to Baghdad. We'll take it from there. And I have remembered those words many times since then. Actually, we liberated the first big city in Iraq, Iraq. Uh, Najaf in the road to Baghdad <clears throat> first. And I remember calling up Orha, the forerunner of CPA, and saying, hey guys, you know we've got this city, why don't we try out here what you're contemplating trying out in Baghdad? And they said, well, we're so, sort of getting our act together down here in Kuwait, uh, give us a, a little bit. Now, as I looked back on that first year, um, it occurred to me that there are three, again, massive lessons out of this. Um, the first is that you should really understand a country in enormous detail, with a great rigorous uh, analytical understanding, before you invade it. Uh, and
1: <laughs> raise your hand if that, you disagree with that.
5: <laughs> There's a and deep then, insight. And that, <laughs> I don't see enough of you taking notes. Yeah, exactly.
2: <laughs> and that, in particular, you should have a real sense of what happens. Obviously, should you take down the regime that is holding a, a multi-ethnic, multi-sectarian. Multi-tribe country together. That's number one. Um, You know, again, it sounds pretty obvious now, but but the truth is that it sure wasn't obvious at the time. Um, Second is that you should then use existing organizations, not pick up teams. With great respect to great great Americans like Dan, who answered the call and went in to serve in the Coalition Provisional Authority we should have just established an embassy right away, which we ultimately did 15 months after the invasion, but it should have been, or 18 months even, we should have done that right away. Tie it into a structure that actually has policies, procedures, funding lines, lawyers, you know, all the rest of this, and then do the same thing. We built up, there was a makeshift engineering unit. Why don't you just use the Army Corps of Engineers? There was a contracting unit. Why don't you use, take your pick, Defense Contracting Agency, Army, but use existing structures and build on them rather than trying to invent something from scratch, especially if you're gonna rotate people through. Dan was a hero to stay for an entire, you know, the entire duration of this thing, but most people were cycling through every three months, which was entirely unworkable. And then the third is that you should ask the following question, which was always on the wall of my operations centers in the two, three, four, multiple four-star commands a question that asked, will this operation take more bad guys off the street than it creates by its conduct? And the same applies to policies. Mm -hmm. And the fact is that firing the military, the Iraqi military, without telling them what their future was, and yes, you had to do demobilization, disarmament, reintegration, DDR, and so forth, but you've got to tell them what their future is, or understandably, they're going to be out demonstrating in the streets, and we had five very, very bloody months before the CPA finally recognized that we needed to give them stipends, but by then the damage was done. And these are individuals, hundreds of thousands of them, of course, who all had military training and weapons at home. And then the second one was, of course, debathification without an agreed policy of reconciliation. No question, you needed to take down the bath level one, two, three, even. But when you get to level four, this is tens of thousands of Iraqis who are running the country. We had 120 tenured professors in Mosul University which we were trying to stand back up, and this just cut the knees out. Now, I was able to get a a special exemption from Ambassador Bremer for Mosul and the area for which we were responsible to allow a reconciliation process, but ultimately it wasn't supported in Baghdad by the Iraqis. And again, you needed to have a reconciliation process before you throw tens of thousands of people out of their job and give them an incentive to oppose the new Iraq, Rather than to support it, which is the ultimate uh, bad idea if you're eventually going to conduct a counterinsurgency, obviously, over the subsequent years, um, you know again, many spent four years total there before it, it, again, including the uh, 19 and a half months that we were together uh, during the surge uh, and the surge again, keep in mind that mattered most was now, which, not the surge, surge of forces surge about? in Iraq uh, and It was not the additional forces, it was the ideas. And these ideas were 180 degrees different from what we were implementing before and 180 degrees different than what President Bush agreed to do with Prime Minister Maliki just a month and a half or so before the implementation of the surge. Uh, So instead of consolidating on big bases, getting out of the faces of the people as it was put, we went back into the neighborhoods because that's the only way you can secure the people is by living with them. We, we uh, took back control from the Iraqis instead of handing it off. We reconciled with insurgents mm-hmm. instead of thinking mm-hmm. that you could kill or capture your way out of an industrial-strength insurgency, although we did a lot of killing and capturing of the so-called irreconcilables, the <laughs> leaders of this. Uh, and then we also did a number of other uh, initiatives, including full integration of the civil and military efforts so that we actually had a civil-military campaign plan signed by the two of us. Um, and I used to get flack for that from my higher headquarters about the, quote, civilian crap in my mission statement. I said, this is because it is a civil military campaign. But so that gives you some sense of all this, what we should have learned, again, from that first year, and then what took us a number of years to learn about how to conduct a counterinsurgency, which we did have. I had a period of uh, about 15 months back in the States when we did create the counterinsurgency field manual, and overhauled every aspect of how we prepared military and to some degree civilians uh, for service in Iraq and in Afghanistan.
1: So Ryan, um, you get equal time, or at least time. Uh, (laughs) And uh, some looking back on it, and even contemporaneously, and let me just say, I went and saw some of this. It was staggeringly impressive to see what was going on at the village level. Uh, But some criticized it as, quote, nation building, Far too expensive, wrong role for the U.S. What what observations do you have or did you have at the time?
3: Well, I'll, I'll start by just making some comments on, on Dave's extremely important points, uh, uh, starting with the one about uh, really understand the country you're about to invade. Uh, <laughs> I, I didn't learn that in Iraq. I didn't learn that in Afghanistan. I, I came in uh, shortly after the fall of the Taliban to establish her embassy in Kabul. I learned it in Lebanon in 1982. Um, that was when the Israelis launched Operation Peace for Galilee, to, to finally put an end to Palestinian terror into northern uh, Israel by basically uh, eliminating the PLO as a military actor. Um, that did not end well. Not, not for us, not for the Israelis. Um, We seem to have been blind to the fact that there had been a coup in Iran and that that new revolutionary Iranian government had immediately forged a strategic partnership with the Syrians, uh, and it unraveled from there. Uh, So you gotta know who you're invading. Uh, And again, we're not equipped that way. I I think there have been some changes in in the military, particularly in the army, so that um, uh, the foreign affairs officer track is not now exclusively for intel officers. Uh, you, you want an army that has combat arms commanders, battalion commanders, brigade commanders, uh, who are gonna be in the next fight, who actually speak the language of the country they're operating in, and know its history and its culture. Uh, we, we, we need to push that a lot further. Uh, Dave, as he did in so many areas, kind of sent the flag up on that. debuthification. Uh, it looked good on paper, all kinds of exemptions. Uh, Jerry Bremer said, look, this is one the Iraqis are gonna have to run. We're outsiders, we don't know this stuff, uh, we, we would just screw it up, they gotta grasp it. Well, they did, and used it as, you suggested, a, uh, a weapon against their, uh, their compatriots. Uh, Dave was the first to flag this, we talked about Mosul University, we did get a carve out for that. Uh, but we did not take over the whole process. It becomes pretty crucial. The other point I'd make here, and this goes back to something Dan said, this stuff is really, really, really hard. Uh, and you're not sitting in Aspen, Colorado, working it out. You're, you're out there in the smoke and the dust of the fight, uh, trying to see if you can make a right decision on no sleep in 36 hours. Uh, it's hard, and there was no playbook. Um, On this particular issue, Jane, um, uh, yeah, nation-building, not a great concept, but but words count. Uh, I think the word I'd like to hear more of as we look at Iraq and Afghanistan, Syria, other crisis zones, stabilization. Uh, Nation-building and reconstruction only kick in if you have achieved stabilization. Uh, which, of course, we never did in either Iraq or Afghanistan. I, I just, you know, words count, and I think if you can make a mental approach to stabilization versus nation-building, uh, you can get to a lot better place than on, we would On we, that
1: we, point, as I remember it, um, the three words of the COIN strategy were clear, hold, and build, not, not nation-build, just build, and uh, the, the military role was clear, and I guess the civil military role was hold, and then the build part was going to involve a lot more of local activity in in stable spaces. Is that fair?
2: Yeah, but we ended up doing almost all of it. With we ended
1: the military. up doing it our, yeah. with the military, right, because that was the clear capacity. Hold,
2: clear, hold, build, and transition. Not ah. just hand off, but you gradually transition. We gradually thin out as they uh, okay. take, take control. Yeah. But the challenge was that we just didn't have the capacity that was needed, uh, right. despite the heroic efforts of the State
1: a- Department, absolutely repeated
2: fair. tours, and so absolutely forth. Absolutely fair. So the military ended up having to do a great deal of that.
1: So before, uh, I didn't, did I cut you off, Ryan? Because I wanted to go to Dan and Doug to see if they had anything yeah, to add I've, on this.
3: Just just one, one more point okay. on this, uh, uh, Dave's point on establish an embassy at the outset. Uh, We actually knew how to do that because that is what we did in Afghanistan. Uh, I was the one who went out there and ran the flag up for the first time. Uh, We were an embassy from day one. Uh, Would it have worked that well in Iraq? Definitely would have been a different story, probably a much harder story. But I I guess I'm making this point to suggest there are all kinds of lessons out there based on precedent, Uh, things you don't want to do and things maybe you do want to do. I don't recall anybody talking about the the Afghan model for Iraq.
4: I would just make two quick points. One, I remember soon after Ambassador Brimmer had arrived, so this is sort of like late 2003, early 2004, he was was having a phone conversation with Vice President Cheney who was asking how Brimmer thought things were going. And he said, Mr. Vice President, I think we have the worst of both worlds. We have an ineffective occupation. What he meant by that was, if you're going to actually occupy we can come up with you for stabilization but it wasn't occupation if you were going to occupy you better do it well because if you don't do it well in other words the rockies would he believed tolerate the the sort of unpleasant optics of occupation if it meant stabilization if it meant security it was a pathway to transition but the but the worst was to have all the heavy optics and 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 sort of equipment of occupation and total chaos and incompetence. Can that I, was that was that was like the ultimate humiliation.
1: Can I just ask you a question? There, I remember going to Iraq uh, very early on after the CPA had been stood up. Jerry Bremer was there, and he was very confident that in a few weeks the electricity would be on, back on for the whole country, oil would flow, and the oil would pay for our temporary, short-term occupation and victory.
4: Right. Well, no, no, right. no. He was not. He did believe we had a path, I mean, if you really want to get granular, we can. Uh, he did believe there was a pathway to restoring electricity, not to pre-war levels, but to something that was more manageable. He, was, he did not believe that the oil revenues were gonna pay for what lay ahead. Um, I, I'll, I'll say just one other point on the decisions around debathification and disbanding the um, Iraqi army. Uh, again, I, I agree, especially with what Ryan just said about, about the. A massive mistake, if we were going to depathify, to just sort of hand it over to the Iraqis. And as, as he said, there were all these political vendettas that were being played out through de um, But again, we were extremely short-staffed. Uh, very few of us, including Ambassador Brimmer, were, were ever involved with the pre-war planning. It's not, as General Petraeus says, it's not like we were all involved before to plan for this period. We were all being parachuted in, in a very chaotic, or a lot of us, in a very chaotic, uh, situation and didn't have the analytical uh, capabilities and understanding that um, that Ryan said should, should undergird any kind of this uh, kind of project, um, and we were just making decisions in a massive vacuum under incredible pressure and total exhaustion. So when the leadership, the political leadership of the Kurds say to us, which they did, if you remobilize, if you bring back into power the leadership of the Iraqi army, of Saddam's army, we will secede. If, When the Shiite leadership said to us, which represented the overwhelming majority of the population, the Shiite political leadership said to us, if you don't debathify and if you bring back S- Saddam's generals, we will be in open revolt against the U.S. efforts here. That would be the majority of the population. And they had reasons to distrust us, because in the first Gulf War, they believed, rightly so, that we encouraged them, the Shiites, to rise up against uh, Saddam, and then we weren't there to back them up, and they got crushed. So they, were, they, they came into our arrival the second time with great distrust. So, you know, we're like drinking out of a fire hose trying to make these decisions and trying to hold everything together, and we're thinking, wow, if we lose the Kurds and we lose the Shiites, we lose the country. So we gotta be overly, I would, we gotta be responsive, I could argue we're being overly responsive and, and we lack that capability that you speak to. But in retrospect, it, it, I understand why these mistakes were mistakes. In real time, right. keep in mind, this is April, May, June 2003. The regime had just collapsed. It was not as clear cut.
1: Right. And I actually interject something okay. here
4: because there was right.
1: and then Doug.
2: One of the challenges, candidly was that when Ambassador Bremer arrived, some of us had been on the ground for two months. I mean, we actually now mm-hmm. knew something yeah. about Iraq. Up in Mosul and Nineveh Province, we already had a governor. We had an interim council. Uh, we, had, we were already training Iraqi security forces. Um, we were an occupation force by the Geneva Convention, and we were carrying out activities in accordance with that. The challenge was that there was no consultation whatsoever with those actually in the field. In the military, when you do a, an order at high level, you actually bring in planners from the subordinate levels, and that was not done, and that, again, we could have headed off a lot of this had so, that been the case. I
4: agree, I just got, I'm sorry, I just gotta to respond to what, his response, to my response. Oh, yeah. uh, I, I agree with that. I would also add, it's, which is a, an angle that we're not getting into here, it's difficult to overstate the, again, this is, not, this is not an excuse, I'm just trying to paint a picture of what we were dealing with. It's difficult to overstate the pressure we were under from Washington, as Ambassador Brimmer used to call the 8,000-mile screwdriver. And there, there, was, there, was a, there was huge pressure on us to get out. The, the Pentagon, right. many of the right. players in the Pentagon were still operating with this operation that we could get out we could hand authority over to Ahmed Chalabi and a few other exiles and be done with it. So, so I think so we've Doug,
5: demonstrated, right. <laughs> yeah. we, we have, we have capably demonstrated Dave's improve. first lesson, right? which is that you ought to know what we're doing uh, beforehand. So we're not 15 years later talking about this at Aspen. But I'd like to just expand on that lesson because I think all of us have our sort of three or four lessons because look, this, was, this is a life-forming experience for all of us. right? So we've had time to reflect on this now. We all carry around in a card sort of our key lessons. But my guess is every one of our first lessons is the same. And it's this question of understanding the setting, understanding the environment. Let me just expand on that quickly in two ways. First of all, it's not just the country in question. It's the region. Yeah. Uh, and and Good point. just like you, you have to master the question, the, the, country in question, so demographics, geography, culture, history, uh, and so politics, economics, right? But you have to expand that mastery to the region because we found out over and over again uh, that it was what was going on nearby, in Turkey, in Iran, in the Gulf states, in Syria, um, that so influenced what was going on inside Iraq, and and we're living that same experience today in the region around Afghanistan. Um, The second point is, You know, for Americans to say, for us to say, well, we have to master the portfolio, right? We have to master this. It suggests that there is a level of mastery sufficient to generate success, to almost guarantee success. And so I add to the first lesson, a second, a corollary, right? Which is that you must couple mastery with humility because the reality is none of us is ever going to really master and really, no places as complex and as foreign as Iraq and Afghanistan from here. It's just not going to happen. So, this is a twin lesson, right? Mastery and humility. Okay.
0: The topics you hear in Aspen Ideas To Go are incredibly varied. We're happy to bring you shows on politics and foreign policy, but also happiness and parenting. Check out our episode, The Perils of Overparenting." Journalist Katie Couric speaks with experts on how parents' efforts to provide perfect, happy childhoods may actually be detrimental. Here's panelist Polly Young-Eisendrath, author of The Self-Esteem Trap. We're sort of short on miracles in this culture, and so childbirth, having a child, and raising a child has become
1: the biggest miracle. And so people are investing in their children as though they were God.
0: Find the episode in our show notes and listen on your favorite podcast player. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, NPR One, and many others. Delve into our varied topics and learn something new. Here's the rest of today's show. Jane Harman.
1: I wanna ask a final question here. Remember, I started out by saying that uh, I was in Congress and I voted on the two authorizations to use military force, one in 2001 uh, to authorize force in Afghanistan against those who had attacked us on 9-11. Nobody who voted for that, and every member of Congress except one voted for that, thought that that AUMF would still be the basis for action. Uh, by the United States in the region 17 years later. I don't think there was one human being who thought that. And I think probably no one on this stage or any of you thought we would still be in Afghanistan 17 years later. Uh, And then a year later, we voted to authorize force in Iraq. That vote was much more complex and uh, not one-sided, and there were several other votes related to it and so on and so forth. Uh, But the objectives of that were uh, specific to uh, uh, Saddam Hussein, and he was toppled, and so that objective was accomplished. That was that was a regime change resolution or uh, authorization. And so now uh, here we are. Um, we don't have, we haven't had since then, an author- uh, authorization to use force in many other war theaters in the Middle East. Congress is essentially... Uh, <laughs> Uh, I would say the business model of Congress is broken. Uh, There are some good good people in both parties, but making something happen in Congress is very difficult. What I want to ask this panel, last question, is from here, what are the U.S. interests in each of these countries? And if you you got a phone call from President Trump today to ask you what he should be doing now to uh, protect those interests, what would you advise? Dave.
2: Let me start by very briefly giving what I think are the five lessons we should have learned from the wars against Islamist extremists since 9-11. Because if you get these lessons right, the policy sort of falls out. The first is that ungoverned spaces in the Muslim world will be exploited by Islamist extremists. It will happen. The question is how big it is, not just whether it will happen. Second is you have to do something about it. Las Vegas rules don't apply in these places. What happens there doesn't stay there. You can ultimately have the kind of geopolitical Chernobyl that is Syria, the meltdown of a country that has spewed violence, instability, extremists, and refugees, not just into neighboring countries, but all the way into Western Europe and our NATO allies, which has caused the biggest domestic political challenges those countries have seen since the end of the Cold War, and created challenges, I'd argue, for ourselves as well. Fourth is the US has to lead. Generally, you might get away, France might do Mali, we're still gonna be very big in it. But we have essentially built capabilities that are many, many multiples, what all of our potential allies and partners put together. We wanna have them, we wanna have a coalition, we especially wanna have Muslim countries, but we need to recognize that our capabilities, especially in intelligence surveillance, reconnaissance assets, drones uh, unmanned, and, and also then some manned assets, precision strike, and the industrial strength ability to fuse intelligence, These have truly changed what our options are, as I'll get to in the end. The fourth is you have to have a comprehensive campaign, civil, military, all the elements that were present in the surge in Iraq, but without us doing all of them. And that is made possible because of these capabilities that we have where we can, in a sense, fight through others. We can enable them, we can advise them, assist them, train, equip, support. But we're not doing the dying and fighting on the front lines. We're not doing the political reconciliation. We're supporting it, the reconstruction, the restoration of basic services, et cetera. And that is crucial, because number five is that this is a sustained uh, threat. This is a generational endeavor, not the fight of a decade, or much less a few years. We have to acknowledge that. And if you do acknowledge it, then you realize you have to have a sustained commitment. But you can only sustain a commitment if it is sustainable in terms of blood and treasure and we have actually figured out how to do that i would argue that in afghanistan we are now uh, conducting a campaign however fraught the security situation but it is quite sustainable in terms of blood and treasure and what we did in iraq where both of us felt we should not have pulled out uh, but but we we did but we ultimately did figure out how to do this uh, and a credit to the previous administration, and then this one has built on that. So that's how I would come down on that. And I think, again, always it helps to get the big ideas, the lessons right, and then the policy generally falls out from that.
1: Ryan. Let me
3: just
1: uh, – And kinda... remember, this is President Trump calling you. He doesn't have a lot of time on the phone. I'm not criticizing what Dave said. <laughs> but he you could, wants You
3: to could know. DM him on Twitter oh. and then just get it down to, like, Oddly years. enough, I'm not on a speed dial. Uh, so I, I, just building on what Dave said, um, I, I would distill that into one fundamental point. Uh, is the United States of America prepared to continue its global leadership role established after World War II? Uh, the anecdotal information out there is no. Um, but it didn't start with Trump. That backing away started with President Obama. Uh, you, look at the, you mentioned refugees. You look at that. We chose not to lead uh, in the refugee crisis. That has now given us more disunity in Europe than at any time since World War II. That is a strategic consequence of deciding you don't want to lead. So it all comes down to that one point, and I, I think everything else Dave said follows from it. Is the United States prepared to continue that leadership role or not? Because if you are... All of the rest of this kicks in. We can figure out how to do it.
1: So what's your advice to Trump? Lead. Lead. Uh,
4: you know, I, I would actually, I'm very critical of a lot of things the administration has done. Uh, I will say on this particular issue, on Iraq, if you look at Trump's, President Trump's rhetoric during the campaign, which was basically, it's a disaster, it was always going to be a disaster, it will always be a disaster, we're getting out relative to what the policy is today, I think the administration has been pretty responsible, and I, it's, mm-hmm. it's a credit to some of the people who were advising him on this issue, this issue like H.R. McMaster, like Jim Mattis, and, and mm-hmm. Vice President uh, Pence, and the president himself. I think you, General Lute, and, uh, and General Petraeus could speak to this more, but from my understanding, some of the things the president's done on rules of engagement um, have been very important and, a, and been an improvement over what exists in the previous administration that has enabled our forces to be more effective not only in Iraq but elsewhere. Um, but Afghanistan, I think, too. Afghanistan, I think too. Because that, that was
2: against his instincts.
4: Right, right. Stay there and, and... Plus up modestly. Right. Reduce some of the restrictions on use so of...
1: So you would power. say you're doing the right thing. I would
4: say you're doing the right thing. Mr. But one other, one other thing I would say, and this is the part he wouldn't like. Of course, he would like the praise. Uh, the part that he wouldn't like just picking up uh, on what uh, uh, Dave and Ryan said, this issue about ungoverned space, I mean, to me, that's like the game, right? If you have collapsed states and this ungoverned space, you can ju- it's, it's, it's like as certain as night follows day, there will be chaos and bad actors will seize on filling the vacuum and capitalizing on the chaos. <clears throat> so it's not just what will happen in Iraq if we have a failed state there, which if you look at the most recent election, we could have, you could have a total government collapse there, but, are we resourced to deal with these stabilization situations in these ungoverned spaces when they pop up? Iraq, you know, you know, Iraq we actually knew was coming, you could argue, we should have known it was coming, but Yemen, Syria, Libya, I mean, you could start going, down, at any given moment in the world we live in today, we could have failed states left and right, and if ungoverned space is what flows from those collapsed states, and bad actors start trying to fill the vacuum, we do not have the resources in the U.S. government to deploy the kind of expertise that that Dave and Ryan spoke to that we need in each of these situations simultaneously. What if we had to deploy stabilization forces to build back up government capabilities in Yemen and Syria and Libya tomorrow? We're just not resourced to do that. And that should be, in my view, a U.S. policy priority is developing those capabilities. And
1: let me add to that that toxic partisanship at home is helping to create a failed state in America, which is a tragedy because that makes it much harder for us to do what I think everyone agrees to do, agrees we should do, which is lead. Doug.
5: So Jane, you asked the fundamental question here, which is interests. So where are our interests? And I think we hear, I think Ryan said, words count. And there's a difference between important interests, and we have important interests virtually globally. Uh, And most of those interests, though, are interests in stabilizing unstable situations right? But we have vital national interests in only a few places, I would argue. Uh, And I think vital national interests initially took us to Iraq and Afghanistan because of the potential connection between the worst things that could actually happen to us. That's vital, right? So this is global transnational, global reach terrorism, extremists, potentially with weapons of mass destruction. Mm -hmm. I mean, the combination of Transnational extremists with weapons of mass destruction took us to both places, okay? Um, I think today, and if I had a shortcut, and I I too won't get a call from President Trump, um, but if I did, I'd say the real challenge to vital national interest today is the very fabric of the international order that has allowed America to prosper for 70 years. So I never thought, after 40 years in the government, that I'd be sitting anywhere, much less Aspen, making the point that the very fabric here is at risk. I always took this for granted, but the United Nations, the IMF, the World Bank, the World Trade Organization, NATO, right, are all at risk today because America is not only not leading as, it, as she has for 70 years, but appears to be a disruptive influence across this fabric. We appear to be the one who is tearing at the fabric, that is, a vital national interest, and that's the one we should be focusing on.
1: These are patriots. Please thank all of them.
0: <laughs> Jane Harmon is president and CEO of the Woodrow Wilson Center. She's also an Aspen Institute trustee. David Petraeus is chairman of the KKR Global Institute. Dan Senor co-authored the bestseller, Startup Nation, The Story of Israel's Economic Miracle. Doug Lute is chair of social sciences at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. Ryan Crocker served as dean of the Bush School of Government and Public Service at Texas A&M. Their conversation was held on June 29th as part of the Aspen Ideas Festival in Aspen, Colorado. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenen and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Ideas Festival programming team is Kitty Boone, Killeen Bretman, Katie Cassetta, Libby Franklin, Brett Howley, Jamie Miller, and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.